Okay, thank you. So Labrador Uranium, we're a relatively new explorer. We listed in, in March of 2022. We're a well-capitalized company that controls an entire district. It's almost 140,000 hectares in Labrador. It, that district comes with a historical uranium resource. Um, and on the far east end of this is Paladin's greater than 100 million pound deposit. So our goal now is to get in and explore and find another major or several major deposits in, in a well-known belt. Yeah, um, Daniel Major, CEO of GoVX, as you said, uh, we are Africa-focused. Um, primary project is the Maduela project in Niger, looking to get that feasibility study finished, head that towards development and commercial production, hopefully by end of 2025. We've got the Matanga project down in Zambia, which is heading into its feasibility study as well, and we've got our more advanced exploration play for Leia in Mali. Sure, thanks. Uh, Philip Williams, CEO of Consolidated Uranium. We're also a relatively new player in the space, and as our name indicates, we're, we've been consolidating projects around the world, resources and development projects in Australia, Canada, Argentina, and our focus is on the U.S., where we recently acquired a portfolio of projects from Energy Fuels, who's our largest shareholder. These are past producing mines that we're moving forward back in production. Good stuff. Okay, everyone now knows who is who at the zoo. Um, and there's some similarities and overlaps there. In fact, there's a, I think you'll make a perfect Venn diagram, you guys. Um, but gonna, we're going to kick off with last week's uh, conference, um, the WNA. Lots of good news coming out of there. Very buoyant um, audience, uh, indeed. Um, Dan, I bumped into you, Dan, in reception. What was your takeaway from the conference? I think you take it from Sama Bilbao Leon's presentation when she started the conference off, which... Uh, sounded more like a cheerleader revving up for a presidential address in, than uh, you know the general director for uh, the nuclear industry which we've got used to in the past of being somewhat you know conservative and sanguine um, this was our time is now uh, if you're going to achieve harmony you've got to quadruple the number of reactors to maintain the one and a half degrees um, it's in our hands our destiny is ours we, the industry, have to find ways of getting reactors built faster because the world wants them and needs them. Um, and I think that was kind of the underlying. On top of that, a lot of questions about, that's great, but where are things going to come from? And so obviously you've got the supply side for the nukes themselves, but then you've got the fuel supply and a lot of conversation about, okay, each stages of that, which is where the enrichment going to come from, particularly the geopolitics, but beyond that uh, where's the conversion coming from and then i bumped into a couple of the trade guys who said look there's so much news flow out there they're eternally upgrading their demand stories uh coming through as well i think the other bit of news that came out was uxc put out their updated annual inventory report which if you remember back in 2015 was a depressing note to, that there was 1.4 billion pounds of uranium in the market. What a turnaround on their story. Um, we've now gone from, this is all grim, to, oh, by the way, everything that's on the surface, we now need somewhere and there's none of it for sale. Um, you know, complete different turnaround in the messaging that yes, there's inventory, but it's non-fungible now, guys, and you need to find your material. A uh, lot of discussion on price acceleration in the market as well from what the supply costs are coming in. So a lot of discussion about the underlying costs of producing uranium and utilities starting to appreciate 
that prices have got to go up to cover inflation, if nothing else, and to get their material supplies. That's an exciting note to end on. Um, there's a few things I want to come back to, but I want a chance for everyone to have a chat. Now, Phil, you were in London, but you were pounding the streets talking to investors. Are some of these messages getting through to them? Yeah, no, they absolutely are. And uh, I think what was very interesting, and I'd, I'd sort of like to let people in on, is the investor interest was very, very strong, particularly from new funds who haven't been in the uranium space. So we walked around the street, and uh, I was actually co-marketing with uh, Mark Chalmers, the CEO of Energy Fuels. We saw, of course, we saw regular funds that have been in the uranium space for a long time. But several of the people that we talked to are brand new to the space and particularly newly started clean energy transition funds. I thought this was very interesting. We saw two companies who have just started these funds. They're starting to raise capital. And because nuclear is now part of the European green taxonomy, they can allocate funds into uranium. They don't know anything about it yet. They're doing the work. They're energy guys. They're smart. They're smart investors, and they're coming into the space. And I think historically, and just given the size of the uranium market as it is right now, if we get an allocation of these kinds of funds into the space, it could move the stocks dramatically. And absolutely. And um, uh, Stephen, I'm going to come up to you uh, next. Which is, as a relatively new company in here, there must be moments we thought, "Crikey, have we timed this right?" But this this change in narrative. That's going to make you feel a little bit better, hasn't it? Oh, look, it, it, it makes me feel great. We, we get it. But I look at it from two points of view. The advantage we've had in the last, say, year when we created the company and went public and, and with the news flow coming out of the uranium space, that allowed for relatively easy financing. There was an incredible amount of demand. But as an earlier stage developer, um, I always try to look at the long-term supply and demand side. Like I, I've seen enough mining cycles where people get really excited and two or three years later, whatever that commodity is, has died and now and, and your, your peak has dropped. And what I find very exciting for, for a longer term developer like ourselves is this really has long legs. Like the fundamentals of this are, you know, you can talk about why copper, why lithium and energy metals and all that. But in the end, we need to supply baseload power. This is our only chance, our only source and so this isn't a one, three, five year horizon. You know, I'm not, I'm not a global economist, but this is a fairly straightforward, it's your only choice. We have to go this way. The world is changing its view on it. Um, and so it, it has made the short term easy for us in that the market is there, but I really believe that we're just at the very beginning of something long. And, and I think it's just gonna get more attractive, which, which is great for, for companies like ourselves. It's great for developers, for, for sure. Uh, now, Dan, you, your project in Niger, um, meaningfully advanced. You've obviously got your other projects in, in Mali and Zambia too, um, a little bit behind. But we're starting to see a clearer narrative uh, from the politicians globally in the wake of a, well, probably in the midst of a large global energy crisis. We're starting to see relationships formed. Uh, President Xi Jinping has been over to... Uh, uh, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Turkey, Russia. He's out there shopping, it seems. Um, again, does that give you some degree of confidence that the utilities will start to understand how product is going to flow in the market and where they're going to get it from? And, you know, what are you doing about it? Yeah, I mean, look, you're actually dividing the world in half at the moment anyway. Um, you know, particularly with the Russian material, which, you know, as we all know, is providing a considerable amount into the US market. Um, you know, we, the, san the it's not sanctioned, 
But what has happened is, particularly European companies, uh, utilities have self-sanctioned themselves anyway. They refuse to buy anything now from Russian um, from 10x um, at all. A lot of the US guys have been following that route. Um, for those that want to continue to take Russian material, it now costs you a lot more to ship it. So where Russian material historically on the EUP was a lot cheaper than you could get it from anywhere else, that equation has changed radically. Um, and you're now paying considerable amounts of money to ship material if you can ship material. And there are a limited number of shipping companies that will actively take on that material and move it. And you've got to remember, if, you're, if you've got a great big container ship coming out and you've only got two drums, you know, two containers on there, they've got a uranium in, you're taking a substantial risk on that whole ship. Whereas you may be better just filling it with teddy bears and your whole cost of shipping is marked down for the whole, the whole ship. I mean, it's radical change. And so this is the dilemma that you're sitting with. If you are shipping out of Russia, anything at the moment, you've got this massive increase in cost because coming out of Russia. On top of that, you've got the, the additional risk of, of shipping radioactive material. So now what you're seeing is everything that was coming out of Kazakhstan and Russia is just going into China. That's the only place it's got. There's a lot of talk about trying to get out through the Caspian Sea, but it's only been done once before, uh, and they're going to try and do it again. So, you know, that's a rather interesting one, talking to the shipping companies there. So now you've effectively divided the world in half anyway. Um, China's that hungry, it'll take whatever it can get from anywhere. But it does mean everybody, Europe and westward, has now got a problem and has to find material. And you're finding a lot of the big utilities, uh, particularly North American ones, are actively talking to the developers. Uh, some of the European ones are as well. There are some will only buy from producers and will never go to a developer no matter what. That's their risk profile. Um, but you are, this has been going on for a while now, Matt, for about the last year. The, the, the big utilities are all trying to understand who's who in the zoo from a development point of view. I think the other underlying thing that we find talking to the off-takers is that the majority we talk to have got holes from 25, 26, 27 onwards in their portfolio of buying that need to be, re to be filled. Um, and there's a concern of where that's going to come from. Right. And, and by the way, I should have said at the beginning, um, guys, do feel free to build on each other's uh, statements. Uh, don't necessarily need to wait for me to ask questions. People here listen to you guys, not me. Um, so don't, don't feel you'd be interrupting me. Um, that said, uh, <laughs> Phil, um, you're seeing some of this narrative in the market starting to kind of clear up, and we're, we're hearing noises that utilities are listening hard intently um they're no longer sort of sitting back wait, wait you know waiting for people to knock at the door they are moving which, which which is good not yet making too many decisions but moving how does a business like yours which is you know your consolidator you know you know clues in the name um go about building their portfolio in the context of how you're starting to see the market pan out and as as, as dan says you know it's almost the forming of two markets now How's that affecting your thinking? Yeah, look, actually, it, it just builds on the way that we've thought about building this company from the beginning. So, uh, you know, as I highlighted at the beginning, we're in jurisdictions that we know utilities will want to buy material from. And that's Australia, Canada, the U.S. primarily, and particularly in the U.S., where we have near-term production assets and a partner that has the only licensed operable mill 
in the country, we've got a clear pathway to delivering material. And we think that that's going to be very attractive to utilities. Daniel pointed out that the U.S. gets quite a lot of its material right now from Russia. That's going to have to change. There's a tremendous amount of potential for developing new uranium mines in the U.S. And we want to be at the front of that. So whether it's the projects that we already have in our portfolio or the ones that we're looking at acquiring to build out the portfolio, uh, we think we've got a big role to play in the future there. Uh, you, you, you kind of said at the end the utilities are kind of not doing anything. I think you have to relook at the market and what they're actually doing out there. Because you're looking at the U308 market. Have a look at the EUP market and the US6 market. I mean, they have gone absolutely ballistic. And why? Simply because if you are relying on your material to make your fuel rods from Russia and 10x, and suddenly that's the bit you can no longer get your hands on, or you've decided not to purchase it, that is where you are currently focused. Uh, you're not going to be worried about material that you aren't going to use for two years. You are going to be worried about material that you need in six months from now. And that is exactly what we're hearing from the utilities. They're not, not in the U308 market. They've got bigger problems to deal with first. And so they're looking at their, their suite of transactions. They're looking at their stocks and they're going, how do we fix these problems first? These are our risks. Get them sorted out. We will come back to the U308 market. And you can see that in the U308 spot market. The last three months of almost nothing in the spot market. I mean, it's just collapsed. Even if you compare it, if you just look at the spot market volumes compared to last year, you'd think we're in a bear market. I mean, there's just nothing there. But that's because those guys have actually been dealing with their risks, which is, where do I get my UF6 from? It's in a supply deficit. I mean, Urenco came out. And basically, I spoke to them in April, and they said, we've got 18 months of UF6 left. And they came out again at WNA and said, trust me, it's a lot less than that. And if we can't get UF6 soon, guys, we're going to struggle to get you the enriched product that you need. And so if that's the messaging that's coming from the enrichers and the converters, that's what you're running out to buy. I'll sort out the U308 later. I need my material now. So like we saw in 2016, EUP went first, UF6 followed it, uranium went last. And U308 will follow up because they'll return back to that market when they've sorted out their risk portfolio. Absolutely. And, and that's well understood. We do, we do a weekly energy show. We're, we've been talking about that exact problem since in the beginning of the year in terms of the, the, the um, inventory numbers. Um, there's not a lot left, guys. But I want to kind of keep it on the U308 because that's what you guys are going to be um, producing. Um, so... Same thing, Stephen. I was going to ask you, and you've kind of got a similar. This is where this Venn diagram thing comes comes into place, where you've you've got a similar um, challenge as Daniel has faced over the past five years, which is the perception that high grade is better than low grade. Um, you know, you know, grade is king, and 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 so forth. But I think how would how would you respond to that? I think if we were in a in a in a world where we got to build one mine and one mine only, then I think that's a very important discussion. But there's only so much capacity in our high grade world. Like it's not like you can build 50 uranium mines and plants in Saskatchewan. It's not going to happen. The permitting doesn't exist that way. And we're not looking at needing singular mines, even at the highest grade to, to, to meet the supply needs that, that are staring us in the face. And again, I, I keep my head up a little higher than these guys looking around because I, the two to three years doesn't matter to me because we're not going to be producing or supplying into that. So I have to look much longer 
And yes, again, high grade is always going to be king, but you, in the very end, it's economics. Will a project make a profit? That makes your decision as to whether you're going to build it or not. So as we're talking about, you know, the geopolitics of the world, we're looking more at that. Labrador is an incredible place to invest, right? We do need to put pounds on the table and, and that, that can be processed. But what we do have are projects that are, yes, lower grade, but not lower. And it's not the lowest grade in the world. There are operating mines lower than what you're seeing in places like Kazakhstan. Um, we do have additional minerals that come into this that can lower, you know, depends on how you play with your math, do lower your operating costs. But we need safe jurisdictions. We need a lot more supply than, than we can get on the market. And I am not looking to be the only player. I'm not going to put my arm, my elbows up and say us and no one else. There is an entire fuel mix, an entire supply mix that is going to be required. There will be these high grade mines, but they're not cheap mines either. They're deep, they're expensive to get at. So in the end, the job of a company, an early stage company like myself is we just have to do the proper blocking and tackling. Is there a mine? Can you make money? Where's long term supply and demand going? And we build it out that way. And we've, we've given ourselves that runway. We're not looking for a three-year solution. We're looking 10 years out. And I do believe that there is a ton of room for that. But the, the, the grade, it's an overly simplistic answer that people go to. It's economics, right? And, and if size isn't there, the grade's irrelevant. If it's too expensive to get at or it can't be permitted, it doesn't matter. If you're in a jurisdiction that scares the hell out of people, a lot of companies my size or, 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 or that are North American-based or public aren't going to be able to play in that world. So I'm not looking, that's not what we're looking at. But it, it's a very fair question, but I think you've got to always turn it to economics. Well, absolutely. But I want to, I want to go there because we're, we're doing a series in a couple of weeks' time, which is called Low Grade is King, because there is this understanding, uh, sorry, this perception in the market, grade is king, high grade gold, high grade nickel, high grade copper, high grade silver is the only thing that's going to work. I think the reality that people in the industry understand is there's a multiple factors. So if you don't mind, and maybe Dan, you can, you can build on this too, like you're getting at your economics, which is that the, what are these other factors which matter in terms of defining the economics? Stephen? Well, for me, I always start at, can the project be built? So can it be permitted? Um, what are those things that are going to kill an asset completely? So in, 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 in the Canadian context, you look at local communities and, and, and indigenous issues. Um, then you have to look at um, what are the key economic factors? So infrastructure. Um, are you having to build billions of dollars of infrastructure to get at your project or not? How easy is it to get it? Then it's about capital costs, right? So if it's it, it, for us where we're looking, it is relatively low grade. Again, not globally necessarily, but so I want things near surface. You need enough. You need enough size to make sense for the capital that you have to spend if you're in a more expensive region. So you have to layer in each piece. Where's your power coming from? Do I have to build diesel or can I get it cheap from a grid? And you you build it every day, but you do start at the very beginning with great, can this be done, right? Because if you're on sacred ground, don't try. If you're in an area and 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 then you, and again, you build it as you go. So um, none of this is rocket science, but you do have to start at the very basics of risk and risk management. And then you move towards geology and then you move towards the engineering and each side of it. Can I permit it? Can I make money doing it? 
Is there going to be a long-term market? And you ask that at every stage of the project. Dan, you're you're right at the um, the well. You're the last nine yards. So, um, what else is there to maybe a bit more on the asset and how you interpret the asset and and, and the factors that affect? Yeah, it? I, I mean, I think one of the points we we talk about. I mean, jurisdiction was raised. And, you know, you know, I've had this conversation a number of times. It was actually interesting. The Euro Atom report that was out a couple of weeks ago. Twenty-five percent of all of Europe's Uranium came from Niger uh, last year. I mean, it's a steady supplier and has done, you know, and that is a key part. I mean, uranium from Niger has been into Convidine's converters of Cameco. You know, it's an, an understood material. It's got a track record of getting into the market with Arano doing it in the past. You know, the permitting is is absolute key. Uh, you know, if you great if you can get a great project, but if you can't actually get it permitted or you're gonna take years to get it permitted, you know, you do the net present value of any decent project and then stick 10 years of permitting on the front of it and then work out what its MPV is. It doesn't matter if you're making a cash cost of 10, you know, 10 cents in the pound after 10 years, it's worth zero anyway, because your MPV's killed it. So if you look at these big projects that are out there, yeah, they are going to have their time. They are going to get their moment in, in the sun, but you, there is a lot of issues on that side to go forward. We are permitted. Uh, we have all of that infrastructure there. We have people. I mean, one of the things I think that was raised a lot when I'm talking to the industry, people in North America are becoming a big problem. Um, finding the skills that you need to build a mine. I mean, Cameco made that point as well already with MacArthur River. It's taking longer to get MacArthur River up and running because they can't find the people for it. I was talking to one of the trade guys and they were saying the same problems happening in Wyoming. Guys are trying to get their businesses loaded up and they can't find trained staff to do it. We're in a great position because we've got Comac and Somalia next door to us. One of them's closed. Uh, we've got two universities of mining and geology in Niger. There's a skill set already built into there. So there are many aspects to this. Uh, and I think the most obvious greatest king question in our industry is you look at the grades that Kazakhstan mines versus the grades that Cameco mines. They are completely disparate. But who's the low cost producer in the industry? Not Cameco. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. I think once people, and that's why we want to do this series, because I, I, I think there's so much more to it. And it is, as uh, Stephen says, you know, rather simplistic to, to just look at grade. Um, right, Phil, you you are you have consolidated a portfolio of projects, and I suspect in the early days your decision making and, and and filtering and diligence was slightly different than it is today because different landscape. You've got a phase or have a blended approach to your portfolio where you're able to phase in projects which are going to generate cash, some which are going to be development, some which are going to be exploration play. So when you're analysing companies like like the guys' companies here, what are you what are you looking for these days? I mean, in our portfolio, we're pretty happy with the advanced projects we have. We have similar to Daniel, we have permitted mines in Utah that we can that we can move forward. When you talk about cost profile, these these mines were built already, so we have very minimal capital to to to, to invest in these projects. It's really working capital to start mining them. So we're very happy at the front end of our portfolio. What we're looking for is the development projects that that come in behind them. And so as we look at either within our portfolio, what we can advance into that category or externally opportunities to build out those uh, those parts of our portfolio. And then and then when we look at the rest of the portfolio, we see 
big option, uh, upside option value in some of the projects. We also see opportunities to potentially spin out projects similar to, uh, to what we did with Labrador Uranium. So we've got a lot of dynamics in the portfolio, but right now it's focused on the near-term production in the U.S. and what can we feather in behind that in terms of real actionable development projects in the next three to five years. Right. And, and what are the red flags for you? In terms of new new project evaluation, or or just in our company? Well, I, well, I, well I, I guess new, new project um, evaluation um, is is one thing, but in, in terms of the market as it's um, changing at the moment, you, you you must be thinking, well, maybe enough's enough. We'll focus on what we've got, um, you know, and, and see, you know, wait till things evolve somewhat. Or do you say, actually, now's the time to buy? A lot of M and A happening. Yeah, no, now's the time to buy. We we're we have a very similar view to Daniel and Stephen. The, the, the future is very bright for this sector, but there are there are still companies and assets out there that that are not being moved ahead properly by their management teams or, or stuck for some reason that we think kind of new life within our portfolio can add to. I think what we've found historically in the space is single asset, single jurisdiction companies are inherently much more risky than a portfolio approach. So there's op- there's op- there's opportunities out there for other groups to come in and, and be part of our development pipeline. And we wanna grow the business. There's a critical mass exercise here. The, the investment community wants to invest in bigger companies. We've seen the M&A happening and uh, it's gonna to continue to happen. And I think that we're gonna be a big part of it. Right, and, and, and Stephen, um, for you, North America, you have the, the, the spin out from, from, the, from uh, Phil's company. Um, do you, do you think the money's gonna be there when you need it or do you have to time this market uh, carefully, it's a, it's really a bit of both, right? So, and, and it depends on how you're trying to build a company. So, there is money available, and there continues to be. Uh, as Phil was 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 relaying earlier when he was doing the rounds in in London, we're seeing more funds come into the space as the ESG space seems to starts to open up more. There will be more available. Um, but timing is still always important for two reasons. One is you always want to try to do a financing when you've got a hot market, it's better for your shareholders, it's less dilutive. Um, so obviously that is, that is a critical step. Um, but you also have to think of the reality of being a, an explorer. Uh, and that's something Phil, Phil kind of alluded to just a second ago was, is if you don't take advantage of those moments in the market that are good, it can really hurt you in the in-betweens. You can have this long-term thesis but you get these droughts where people don't want to finance or the money isn't available. And if you haven't financed in those hotter times, you can't advance your project. So keeping a, cl- a, a, a close eye on your cash balance, not don't look six months out, try to look 18, 24 months out and be ready because yes, long-term is what we want. This is always going to be a volatile market. So it's it's a combination of both. You have to be ready when the market's hot get out there because I going into this exploration season, we were quite nervous about being able to secure uh, drillers, helicopters, that sort of thing, because it was looking like it was going to be an incredibly hot summer. So many companies were offered money and did not take it because there's always this prevailing view of, you know, my next press release is going to make my price worth more. There's a reason that more money is going to be available. And then it dried up. So instead of having a super competitive exploration season, a lot of guys did not have the money to do stuff. So um, you need you need to look at both at all times. 
and then be ready when the market's hot so you can do it. Well, well, yeah, absolutely. And so, Phil, I'm going to bump back to you. You don't have any Af- assets in Africa. Was was Africa off the um, watch list, or was it just a dent of the fact there was nothing you, that you liked there, or, or what? No, it wasn't off the watch list. I think we, uh, you know, the the right opportunity didn't come up at the right time. We did. We've had conversations and discussions, and you know, personally, I've been to. Two of Daniel's projects, for example, I've been to Namibia, I've been to these countries in my past, so we're very familiar with them. I think what we also found is we started this company in the middle of COVID, and there wasn't an opportunity to go travel to these jurisdictions. So we we went to the places that we had teams in place or we were comfortable and we, we, we knew the people that we were getting into bed with. So in the US, we have energy fuels, we have access to their team in Australia. Our VP corporate development lives in in Queensland, Brisbane, so that's a, that's a perfect place for us to have. We're of course in Canada, so we sort of focused on those jurisdictions that we knew that we had the people for. Africa was is I mean, there's tremendous opportunities, tremendous projects there. It's not what it was not. Uh, we didn't make a specific decision not to go there. Right, and, and Daniel, to, to you, I kind of referenced right at the beginning that you know you had some of the same. Um, hurdles to overcome as, as, as Stephen with regards to the low-grade perception. You also had the Africa factor in there too. So the last 10 years for uranium has been, you know, tricky. Um, but in recent times, there's a, the, I think that hopefully has changed. The narrative seems to have changed with the politicians. Um, is Do you think now when you're talking to the institutions, you don't have to have that Africa concern, that low-grade concern? What are the things that the red flags that they put up in front of you that you bat away? You know, Africa is, is a perception issue, as you said. People just don't always understand Africa. It, uh, as you know well, it's, it's 54 different countries. It's, it's not one country. I mean, there are lots of different jurisdictions doing very different things in different places. Uh, I mean, you look at Zambia, it's been a massive copper producer for years. Um, you know, to the global market. And like every jurisdiction, doesn't matter where you are in the world. I mean, look at Australia. Uh, you know, it flip and flat with, you know, Labour governments. I mean, you look at where Sweden is now. You know, it's going left wing to right wing. Things change. Uh, and you get governments that are very pro-development and governments that are not very pro-development. And, you know, but through this thing, the mining industry just keeps going. I mean, Niger started producing uranium the early 1970s. I mean, it still is producing uranium. And we've had a great government working with us all the way through this. So, you know, I think people just, they don't know Africa. So, and they don't want to bother wasting their time learning about it. The reality is we're in mining jurisdictions. Permitting is relatively easy. The main reason for that is the government actually owns the land. And so you're actually you're, you're, the primary stakeholder that you're dealing with is the government itself. So, you know, unlike in, in the U.S., where there are, you know, you look at places like Wyoming, or lots of little farmers you've got to deal with and little stakeholders and whatever. You've got to put your whole little patchwork together. You're actually just talking to one stakeholder. Uh, I mean, you just literally go and say, I want this piece of ground. Can I have it? And yes, you can have it get on and do the job. And so I think that's the very, governments don't really change their rules very much. I mean, Niger's mining code really hasn't changed. We've had a couple of addendums to the mining code since we've been there, but it hasn't changed the code. They've just tidied it up. Um, Zambia's had its swings and roundabouts, but actually has always kept on going in the straight line. So 
you know, I have no problem with working in Africa. You know, you know, you, we got our Niger permit in less than six months. You know, all our Zambian projects were are permitted up as well. So if you can't get your permit, you can't mind, no matter what you got in the ground. And talking of which, should we go to Canada? It's, it has a perception of being a tough place to get licenses and permits and and you have you know First Nations issues, you have ESG issues. You know it it, seem, it seems to be a difficult place to do business. So you you could have picked anywhere, Stephen. Uh, you know the Athabasca Basin seems to be the go-to place. Why why didn't you go there? Well, first and foremost, I didn't have any assets there, right? So you've got to deal with where you can actually get assets and, and do something with. Um, and 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 look, I think just further to, to Daniel's point is. It's really important to understand in our industry, and that's where you know there's there's often money to be made, is the difference between perceived risk and real risk. And yeah, there are hassles in Canada that can people can perceive. There are hurdles we have to get through. But in general, the rules and regulations and permitting in Canada are very, very well known. Even the dialogue that you should have with the First Nations and Indigenous communities. And so it's just do your job instead of fighting it and doing it like, like you know the permits you need you know the environmental work you need and, and and build your company and your team around that where you often get the difference between perceived and real risk is built around your team right the team that can do something in labrador may not be the team that can do something in niger may not be the team that can do something in argentina but build a local team that knows what they're doing bring the right pieces to it because it's a puzzle but here we know what the pieces are so you just go from a to b to c and very rarely do those things ever kill a project it's about mitigation okay a local group might not like you why why is it okay how do i answer that question you can plan design structure around it uh, there are very few fatal flaws look endangered species you know protected habitat hopefully you've figured that out before you've gone and staked a piece of property right um, but I, the thing I do like about Canada, with most of my career actually being in, in, in South and Central America, is there might not be a fast forward that you can use where you can get around things and move to something quickly, but it really is, it's a prescribed process and just just go do it. And, and you can choose to fight it, but there's no point. And you just, you do the work and it will get done. It just, it does take time. Yeah. Like the statement, I, 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 I just slightly, um, there's slight tongue in cheek. I don't, th I don't think there's anywhere quite frankly at the moment that feels it's easy to do mining. It's getting more complicated and, and, and layered and, and costly in terms of documentation, uh, for, for, for sure. Um, but, I've, um, maybe if we, if we come, come to you, Phil, with regards to, um, timing, which is something that Stephen just mentioned, timing markets is really, really, really important. You, I think, referenced earlier that perhaps, yeah, you, know, you, you know, you weren't as concerned about timing because there's no sort of imminent producers, except potentially the, uh, the uh, energy fuels uh, project for you. So how do you think your portfolio is going to time this market and, and what you're hearing and then seeing uh, with regards to the, the, you know, the commentary from politicians and utility buyers, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, look, what we're, what we're working towards is being ready to deliver into the market, into the next big market spike, quite frankly. So we're getting our projects to that position where we can turn them back on in a matter of months. 
and uh, and so that's so that's kind of where we are, and uh, and it will have to dovetail, as you point out, with the timing of the restarting of the energy fuels mill, which you know, and and we talked earlier about utility contracts. I mean, energy fuels has signed three contracts with utilities for materials starting to be delivered in 2023. So it's a very good chance that mill is going back online mid to late 2023, and we'll be ready to deliver material then if the market conditions are right. And we'll be, we're very flexible with our minds. We can turn them on and off very quickly. Unlike some other projects, if you have to spend hundreds of millions on CapEx or develop a well field, once you start, you have to stay in production. We could batch mine our mines turn them on, turn them off as the market uh, conditions uh, warrant. Right, like, okay, and I'll put my hands up. I'm, I'm a uranium bull. I don't think there's, uh, that's any secret. Um, but um, I have made some statements which I have not been very popular about the next calves off the rank. And obviously the, devel the development companies um, clearly are, are there. Um, and I think I was pointing, you know, at quite a few development companies which are coming off the rank in Africa. So, um, is there anything that worries you at the moment, um, Dan, in the sense of there's a bit of pressure on you to actually get into production because we need all of the above. We need every project to work and every project to get into production. But timing, again, is, is important and how you manage those conversations with utilities is important. So what, anything concern you? I think ultimately that is the conversation that, that has to be got around. I mean, you've seen that problem at the moment with... Urenco and, and Combodyne. Um, now, Urenco wants to expand its capacity in Richmond. The market needs it to expand its capacity in Richmond. You know, Combodyne wants to expand its conversion capacity. But both of them are saying, we will not expand it unless you guys are willing to write us the long-term contracts to underpin the financing that's required to do it. Um, and I think that's where we're starting to see the utilities now understand um, that, yeah, they are going to have to make that move and do it. And I think, you know, one of the discussions that I was having with one of the, the trade companies was, you know, there is a risk out there for the utilities that if they don't move, they get caught out. As I said, there are some 50 pound gorilla utilities out there who do not buy developer mines. They will not do it, but they are massive buyers. And so if they are filling up their portfolio with the existing producers, and you've got a big supply gap out there, those that don't move fast enough are going to have to commit to the, the other side and are gonna to have to pay the price to get their material. Uh, there are big utilities that want us actively support as well, uh, and they're out there in the market and know that you have to get this diversity of supply and you've got to create new operations. So, you know, it's all down at the end of the day, you know, to economics and then getting the money. And so that's effectively the stage we're about to come to now, which is here are our economics. Now we've got to find the money that goes with it. Um, and I think, as you say, you know, the next stage is all about the market, but it's also about the debt market. And what is the debt market doing? And how is it feeling? Because that's a completely different group. They, they don't care about the uranium price or the copper price or any other price. They are a lending market and, and where they see lending risk. So that's the next stage for us to get through. But, you know, 
We'll see where they come to. Phil, can I ask you, 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 you were pounding the streets and talking to investors. I'm, I'm sure you all were, but I'm, you, know, you, you mentioned at the beginning. Um, and we've used the phrase bifurcated market, but that's in terms of who's friends with who. But is there um, a sense from, to pick up on Dan's point with regards to the, the debt market, is, is there a sense that the energy crisis is so deep and so instilled in a lot of the decision making politically that they are gaining some level of comfort from the way that, that, that governments are talking in terms of you know, either under, underwriting these big investments, whether it be for reactors, SMRs or otherwise, and therefore that has a kind of knock on or, or, or some, some kind of benefit to um, you know, pr- producers and, and you know, those contracts that utilities are looking to sign. Do you, do you know what I mean? Because if I, as an ex-banker, I, in a market like this, normally, if I wasn't talking in energy, I would be extremely nervous, cash in the back pocket, and it would be staying there. But does energy get a free pass? Yeah, look, I, I mean, I don't know the answer to that. And, and because I'm not having those same questions, our projects are already built. We're not looking to raise capital to build our mines. We're just need, we need capital to turn them back on, which is working capital. We're fully funded for that. So we have $25 million in our balance, in our, on our balance sheet today. It's going to cost far less than that to turn our minds back on. So we're not having those conversations. Um, but, you know, everything that you said off the top in terms of where nuclear is going and how, what an important role it's going to play in, in tackling global climate change, I think will open up those, those, ultimately open up those purse strings to finance these projects, whether it's equity or debt or some combination thereof. Okay. Um, gentlemen, I think I, I, we better start sort of wrapping it up there. I, I, I think the general sense is everyone's super excited about the narrative. I'm not, this is not an arm-waving exercise for, for uranium or, or, or nuclear. This is just based on facts. The politicians are excited. The WNA conference, so a lot of you know, important people stand up on stage and go, we got to go nuclear as our base load. Um, now is the time. The money is available. The incentives will be there. All good news. Um, but that said, I'm excited. I'm going to give you each maybe two minutes to kind of uh, sell your companies um, in that context. So maybe, um, Sim, should I start with you? Sure. <laughs> if you can get me not to talk for more than two minutes. But look, so Labrador Uranium is, you know, we are different from, from, from what these companies have here. Um, but we see we're going to be a very important part of the mix. Why? Because we do control almost 140,000 hectares of, of, of an area that's highly prospective for uranium. We start with a historical uranium deposit of about 20 million pounds uranium equivalent. There's over 100 targets on this belt that we control over 125 kilometers. And throughout that, there are smaller known deposits. At the far east end, it's anchored again by Paladin's Michelin deposit. Um, and we're in a great jurisdiction for, for, for resource development, which is Labrador. And it's a very, very happy place to invest and to partner with, with the local government. So we are earlier stage. We've got a really strong building block of not just historical uranium resources, but known resources of vanadium, dozens of other targets of, again, not just uranium, but copper and other metals that actually play into the same thesis, which is a long-term energy need, be it through uranium, which is going to be our fundamental supplier of baseload energy, and then the different metals that are going to feed into this battery EV market, wherever that goes, but it is booming, but you still need things to feed that. 
Um, and we've given ourselves multiple shots on goal for using a sports analogy of how we're going to deliver success. Again, with dozens of targets, a really good team, and in a basin that's been explored for 50 years. So we have all of that data. And then the final piece of our puzzle is we brought in a team that has actually successfully built machine learning, artificial intelligence programs for geological exploration. They've done it successfully. So we can look at all this data. Dozens of companies have been in here before and made discoveries. Now we can put that together, look up a little more as opposed to just at the individual land package and say, okay, what is here? Where are the giant projects? We can't be looking for something small where we are. And we have multiple targets like that. And our goal then after that is, is straight straightforward. Keep ourselves capitalized, explore and make discoveries. Yeah, I mean, development company in mining jurisdictions got great infrastructure on all our projects. Uh, Niger is fully permitted, ready to go. It's about a 20 year mine life producing two and a half million pounds per annum. That's on the one license we've mine permitted. We've got masses of exploration upside. So a lot of scale up potential on that one. Got a great partner in the government. As I said earlier, Niger has been a major supplier to Europe since the early 1970s. We'll continue to do so. We're now pushing our second project to final feasibility study. About 11 years at two and a half million pounds per annum. Again, substantial exploration, very simple open pit heat leach down there. So, you know, we're on advanced projects. You know, we've toughed this market out all the way through since 2012. You know, our timing is about get timing our projects to be ready for the upcycle. We are timing it perfectly for this upcycle to be ready. The utilities are comfortable, getting comfortable with Africa. I mean, you talk to a lot of the Europeans, more than comfortable to come and buy from Africa. You know, they're focused on, you know, the ESG. We're strong in what we do with our ESG as well. Uh, we have been for a very long time. Um, you know, and a comfortable, in fact, we'll be putting our first ESG report out public one very soon um, as well. So, you know, this is about development companies that are ready to go, ready to be financed. We're starting that conversation very soon on Niger uh, and it will have scale and we will keep building on that scale. Sure. So we've consolidated in a very short period of time. We put together an attractive portfolio of projects. We're in top tier jurisdictions. We have high grade on a global global scalar project saw significant past expenditures in the past markets. We bought them at, at market lows and we expect to harvest that value, particularly through the near-term production potential of our US assets. We're very busy evaluating new opportunities. We're gonna to continue to build out the pipeline as I talked about earlier. We've got a compelling valuation vis-a-vis our peers and we're well-funded with $25 million in the bank. And the team that we put together over the last two years is a proven track record. We've all been in the uranium space for a long time, M&A experts, finance experts, and, uh, and increasingly we've been adding technical expertise to our company as we go to advance these projects. Well, um, gentlemen, I thank you for your time today. Um, Stephen King, CEO of Labrador Uranium, Dan Major, Govex Uranium, and Phil Williams, President and CEO of Consolidated Uranium. I think three companies you should be uh, very comfortable having in your portfolio. So gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Matt. Thank you.